0: This is Michael Gebert. This episode is devoted to one particular label, Kino Lorber, and I wanted to let podcast listeners know that we'll be doing a drawing for copies of two new Kino Lorber releases, Peter Pan and Uncle Tom's Cabin, at Nitrateville.com, around the time that this episode comes out. And you're invited to enter for them, too. If you don't already have an account at Nitrateville, Sign up for one and then look for the contest thread in the Silent News section. There will be a link in the show post, too. All you have to post is your interest in winning one of them. But to make it more interesting for others to read, we'll ask you, in honor of Peter Pan, to name the silent film you'd recommend for a whole family to watch. Then we'll draw names and notify you if you win. And once you're registered, why not join our friendly, moderated discussions of vintage films with people from all over the world? It's a great way to meet other people with this interest and to find out about what's happening in the world of vintage film screenings, restorations, and home video releases. So enjoy this podcast, then go to nitrateville.com to enter to win the movies we're about to talk about.
1: You can find things coming out now that 10 years ago we would have dreamed about releasing and now we're releasing them but ironically we're releasing them now that the market is small and we really have to struggle to uh, remain profitable releasing these films out of the silver shadows
0: and into the klieg lights of movie land comes nitrateville radio This is Michael Gebbert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Some shop for Disney, others covet Criterion. But if you want silent movies, the label you seek out is Kino Lorber. In this episode, we go inside how a leading silent and classic film distributor works, talking to Brett Wood, who produces many of Kino's releases, and Matt Berry, the label's publicity director. And we talk to Kat Ellinger about one of Kino's newest releases, the 1924 classic Peter Pan. And help Nitrateville Radio seek out something else, new listeners. Leave us a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and subscribe at your favorite podcast listening app. Thanks. The theatrical distributor and video label Kino was founded in 1977 and run for many years by Donald Krim as a leading U.S. distributor of foreign films, independent films, classics, and silent films. Krim merged with another distributor in 2009 to become Kino Lorber. He died in 2011, and Richard Lorber now leads the company, which releases to both theaters and home video collectors a wide range of titles covering all aspects of film production and history. Here at Nitrateville Radio, we've talked about many of their silent releases, which often include newly recorded scores, like Rodney Sauer talked about for Old Ironsides, or new restorations of classic films, like Jack Feakston talked about for Becky Sharp. Sometimes their releases amount to major works of scholarship in themselves, like the revelatory box of pioneering women filmmakers that Shelley Stamp talked about here. And they've also released documentaries about filmmaking that we've talked about, like Be Natural and Dawson City Frozen Time. While I seek out plenty of guests for the podcast on my own, as far as Kino releases go, I'm often tipped off to upcoming releases and possible guests by Matt Berry, a Baltimore-based filmmaker and the director of publicity and promotion for Kino Lorber. As often as we correspond by email, we'd never actually met in person until this year when I heard that he was coming to Capitol Fest in Rome, New York. So we met for lunch at a local cafe between shows and talked about the business of promoting silent and classic films to that niche audience, which is to say, to you and me me your filmmaker yeah. as well as doing stuff for Kino out of Baltimore? Yes. Even though they're in New York.
2: Yeah, I worked out of the New York office for about uh, six or seven years, and I work remotely uh, from Baltimore now. I'm uh, teaching a film history class at a local college, uh, in addition to my work with Kino. What college? Towson University. Okay. So, you know, Kino has, uh, you know, Kino Lover has a strong reputation with silent film releases, you know, going going back uh, many years. And some of our recent ones, we, we've kind of brought out some of our kind of classic silent titles again recently. Like we've got P- uh, Peter Pan just came out, the 1924 Peter Pan with Betty Bronson. And uh, later this month in August, uh, we're bringing out uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin on Blu-ray. That's the 1927 Universal production.
0: Yeah. So I mean, that's one of the things that comes up. People. You get people say, why isn't there a better version of this or that? And then other people are like, why is that coming out again when I want, you know, why don't they put new stuff out? Who wants to see Nosferatu anyway? Um, so, yeah, I mean, tell me,
2: what, how do you think they balance what's going to come out? Well, usually I think it depends if there's a new restoration, you know, kind of a good excuse to, to bring a film out uh, in a new edition. With Blu-ray, uh, you know, we've been bringing a lot of films that were previously released only on DVD, bringing them out in new editions, uh, creating new special features and things like that. I mean, we've got something here that is obviously a niche taste. It's
0: not going to be sold via any sort of mass marketing. How, how do you get the word out? Um, Stuff like that.
2: Well, you know, I'm a long-time silent film fan, and that really is what brought me to uh, working for Kino Lorber, because of its reputation with uh, silent film, you know, quality, as a source of quality silent film releases. And going back to when I was just getting interested in silent film, Kino was always the kind of the go-to home video label if I wanted to find the best, uh, the best you know, copy of a certain film. So for me, it was really just kind of natural when I started, had the opportunity to start working for them about nine years ago. And uh, we still, you know, really take a lot of pride in the silent film releases and bringing those to the silent film community. As I as I say, that was you know sort of my background of what got me interested in in movies. You know, taking taking movies really seriously, and then eventually, um, you know, wanting to work for Kino, which for me was really kind of like a, a, a dream job because I get to work with so many films that I love. And for me, it's. You know it's uh, because of that background it's easy for me to and i think look at a film and think all right you know who, who is the audience for this how can we uh, connect with that and of course we're here at uh, Capital fest right now which is a you know great gathering of people who i think really make up in, in a lot of ways the, the core audience for our uh, classic film releases sure
0: yeah so i mean at you often approach me about an upcoming release right. that you think will be of interest to Nitroville. It might be a giveaway, or you suggest such and such person did the commentary or was involved with in it in some way. You know, do you want to talk to them? Um, all of which are good suggestions. I mean, it's not like you're also hitting me with the. You know the brand new release of some Israeli film that uh, you know is just kind of just out of our purview. Nothing wrong with it; it's just not our thing. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, how, what else goes on? You know, besides that having a nitrate mill what else goes on?
2: Well, yeah, it's uh, you know identifying, especially with online communities now with uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter. There's so many different opportunities to reach people who are interested in classic film and. Uh, there's so many online communities that have sprung up around it. You know, going back for me, it was uh, kind of my introduction to this was through the old Usenet Silent yeah, Movie News group, and then Silent. Uh, yes, and then and then uh, you know, uh, you started Nitrate uh, about what was it, about 12 years ago, 12 or 13. Yeah, yeah and uh, yeah, you know, so there have been all these great opportunities for classic film lovers to come kind of come together online and, and, and into these uh, communities, and now with podcasting. And and blogs, you know, these are all ways for this news to spread. So I'd like to kind of you know keep on top of that and make sure everyone knows about what we've got coming out. Are there other podcasts that you target particularly? Uh, there, there's uh, there, well, there's there's quite there's a lot of podcasts that talk about film generally, you know, right. new releases generally. Uh, but sort of nitrate Bill is really targeted towards uh, the, the classics audience, and you know, that's why I think it's <laughs> the really a really deep thing. classics audience. Yeah, events. yeah, for people who really, you know, are, are interested in the not not just to see the films, but hearing about the latest restorations and and the work that goes into it. Yeah, so, yeah, that's why I always reach out to you guys. The uh, films that we're really talking about here, the silence and early talkies, seems to yeah. sort of seems to be the time frame. Although. You reached out
0: to me as well about uh, Harold and Lillian documentary about oh, yeah. film, people who are involved in film production in the, I should say, 50s through the 80s, basically. Right. Yeah. And, and
2: you know we've released uh, quite a few docu- film documentaries recently. Harold and Lillian, uh, Dawson City. We have uh, Be, Be Natural, Natural right? The uh, Untold Story of Alice Guy Blachey, uh, coming out later in August. So, yeah, these are all films that I think even though they're new documentaries, are very much of interest to the classic audience. Yeah. All
0: right. So with talkies, how do you how do
2: you get the word out on those? Well, like I said, I think there's a lot of crossover with the audiences sure. now between silence and, and you know the early talkies. So that I, I, I feel like nitrate fill and, and uh, similar online communities, it's a great way of reaching fans. Uh, one of the things that we've in the past uh, about five years now through, uh, through Kino Lover, we have our studio classics label which includes uh, past films all the way back to the 30s and all the way through the, really the 90s and, yeah. and early 2000s so it's a very wide range of Hollywood studio productions and uh, we're able to you know license those and bring them out on Blu-ray and what I've found is that there's, uh, there's a lot of Classic film fans whose taste seems to span uh, many decades. So I, I find we get a lot of we get a lot of support from uh, maybe the same people reviewing a 40s or 50s title, uh, looking at films from the 80s or 90s.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we're here at a festival, which is careful about alternating silence and talkies, and you know, not. Wearing you down with too much of a thing. I mean, I, th- I think it's probably Walter Kerr who said it in Silent Clowns, but I think it's true that, you know, silence make you tired faster just because you have to pay attention yeah. with your eyes uh, the whole time to keep up with them.
2: And talkies, you can kind of
0: drift away visually and keep up with the plot uh, <laughs> with audio.
2: I, I find as that a, myself as we were watching uh, the, the silent films this morning that. I just find it is more, it, it's, it, it requires greater concentration, you know, just to, just to follow things, uh, simple plot points that, you know, I think are a little, right. a little more spelled out in the talkie. You know. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, or, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we saw the Silent Captain Blood last night and right. comparing that to Warner Bros. I mean, Warner Bros. is very good at, you know, boiling th- or streamlining plots to a very efficient uh, version of the plot, and you could see in Captain Blood it was more like a novel. It had its twists and turns, and you know, when the, you know, what, what we could call the Basil Rathbone character and the silent Captain Blood right. turns up, you feel like a hundred pages have just been boiled down to two minutes. Right. <laughs> <kind of.
2: laughs> but, uh, yeah, the very sprawling storytelling, epic, epic scale. Um, the battle scenes were, were incredible. In yeah, that. Uh, glad to finally see that one.
0: But yeah, like the William Desmond Taylor one this morning also came from a book. Um it was a call, I forgot what it's called, Bill Blair. Or what ben Blair. Ben Blair, yeah. Ben Blair. Um, and it was the same kind of way. I mean you felt like,
2: okay, there's a hundred pages of something and I I gotta follow it quickly. Right. I think a big way that people learn about these films really is <clears throat> through word of mouth. and, and that's something that uh, you know is great about when you have a strong uh, community fans like silent film certainly does is that uh, you know as you're talking with people and getting recommendations about movies uh, so often somebody you know might have might have seen one of our releases on a uh, on DVD or you know through a, through a streaming service. And just through the word of mouth, it really helps people uh, learn about what's out there. And uh, I know I learn about a lot of new films that way. Back in the day, I mean, I think you would have seen a lot, a lot more mass
0: media coverage, which is not in a big way, but I mean, if there's a little blurb in like a premiere magazine back then, or Entertainment Weekly, or if somebody like Roger Ebert or Leonard Malton mentioned it on their programs, I mean, that would have. Driven traffic, I think.
2: Yeah, that, and that's something that I have seen uh, change even in the nine years I've been doing this. That um, a lot of the, you know, with with um, some of the ch- you know changes in print journalism and some of the, the mass uh, publications, like you mentioned, um, there's. In some ways, I I, th- I think the coverage now is a little bit more niche. It's a little bit more targeted. Um, and so the, the trade off to that is you don't have something like when. Uh, I remember when we released Buster Keaton's Seven Chances on Blu ray for the first time. They did a little uh, segment on it, I believe it was on uh, Leonard Walton's Reels Channel uh, show that he had. And, you know, that is going to reach a, a much uh, wider audience of uh, different, you know, different movie buffs. But, yeah, now I think it's a, a little bit more, uh, actually it's a lot more focused, a lot more targeted, uh, kind of specialty blogs and websites. And so that's the way that I've seen it change uh, just mm-hmm. in the time I've been doing this. So did Malton empty the warehouse of Seven Chances discs
0: at that point? or I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and also, I mean, there aren't the retail outlets that there were before is it it's pretty much all online
2: sales do you think a, a lot has moved online um, and, and you know we still we do a lot of direct to consumer sales uh, right through our website and of course uh, all the other all you know big online retailers like Amazon and everything um, but yeah the, the you know the, the landscape of, of uh, the, the retailers has has uh, changed as well in that yeah. time
0: i mean like we were talking about the spiral staircase if, if i wanted that in a store what what store would i find it in do you know of one
2: well i know like barnes and noble so oh that's true. a okay. lot of, yeah, yeah i mean, that, that's you know that's when and, and when uh, you know borders was still around that was a place i those were places i used to go for a lot of uh um, yeah. purchases but i, I know um you know, I don't think some of the, the big electronic stores like Best Buy don't tend to carry as, as much in the Cattle-like way of classics yeah, as yeah. they did like 15 years ago. I remember sort of like at the, at the height of when uh, a DVD like in, the, in the early, mid-2000s, I remember finding a lot of classic titles for sale in Best Buy and places like that, which I just personally don't see that as much anymore when I go in there. I, I, still, um, you know, I, I still go to Barnes & Noble and uh, see a lot of the titles in there. But yeah, a lot of I think a lot of it has moved online. Yeah, you think people are still collecting
0: stuff? I mean, it, it, there's so much on streaming, but still, I mean, I feel
2: the urge to
0: like have certain things. Oh yeah, I think I think
2: the Blu-ray uh, format especially has opened up like a real dedicated collector's market, and you know we put a lot of care into all these releases and with, with bonus features and everything, uh, trying to bring out new restorations when they're available. And films that maybe haven't been released before in some cases Uh, some of our we've had some uh, newer titles uh, coming up like uh, Babylon which is a 1980 was a British film and was so controversial that it never actually got a US theatrical release until just earlier this year we we brought it uh, out into uh, theaters and now it's coming to Blu-ray. So there's films like that, you know, which they've also undergone really extensive restorations. And, you know, we're bringing those audiences here basically for the first time. Yeah. That's what
0: makes me feel old is when things are getting restored that I saw in first release. So, <laughs> Or... What was the one? Uh, literally a print I handled in 16 millimeter, that documentary about William S. Burroughs. And it oh, was yeah. like so people were saying it was lost at one point. Right. That's weird to think that something you've had in your hands could then be lost. I mean, I think they found... Because the filmmaker died of AIDS, I think, and they found, but they found like a good quality 35 or something like that. Something like that. I don't. know, Was that a keynote release? No. Like, okay. um,
2: but you know, there are a lot of films that we've been able to, I think, kind of uh, get access to material, you know, better quality materials, archival elements, and do new restorations. Um, like I said, you know, Babylon is one of the uh, key repertory releases that we've now. That we're bringing out on Blu-ray, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, the new editions of films like Peter Pan and Uncle Tom's Cabin, right. but you know, we've also done a lot of uh, archival re- restorations through, um, in association with the Library of Congress, and also with uh, Serge Bromberg's Lobster Films uh, in, in France, and so that's opened up, you know, that, that's opened up um the opportunity to release a lot of titles that you know might not otherwise get a Blu-ray release. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's just striking to me that film preservation never ends. It's not like it's only about things before a certain time. Independent films made by companies that went out of business or filmmakers who didn't keep track of their own stuff or whatever. You know, that it might only be twenty years old, but it could really be in trouble. And, and so every decade where <laughs> we need to be
2: preserving yeah that's one of the things I found interesting about working on the uh, Pioneers of African American Cinema collection and also the Pioneers First Women Filmmakers collection uh, was that a, a lot of the films in in, uh, in both especially I think the African American Filmmakers Collection though uh, a lot of these were you know regional filmmakers and independent filmmakers before that idea really had kind of uh, taken on the same way that it has today. I mean these were these were filmmakers really working uh, entirely outside of the Hollywood system, uh, working independently, self-financing in some cases. And so films like that are obviously not going to be as well cared for as a studio production where elements are stored in the vault and and you know, uh, so it really was an opportunity to uh, bring out movies that are, have been unfairly neglected for, for decades and to work with those survive, best surviving archival elements and, you know, I think give them a new life on Blu-ray. Yeah. yeah. So do you get to go to a lot of things? I mean, are there a lot of screenings
0: in the Baltimore area? Or? I,
2: I go to, uh, yeah, I try to attend revival screenings. We've got the Charles Theater and the Senator Theater, uh, okay. which both have, you know, strong revival programs. I love seeing movies on the big screen. And that, that to me, is one a while love coming to events like Mostly Lost and Capital Fest, because it's really fun to see movies with an audience on the big screen.
0: Brett Wood is also an independent filmmaker, with an interest in transgressive films which showed itself when he helped curate a series of low-budget exploitation films at Film Forum in New York earlier this year. But he doesn't just warn you against the dangers of loose living; he also produces many of Kino Lorber's releases, including the award-winning Pioneers of African American Cinema and Pioneers First Women Filmmakers. To find out more about how a film goes from the vault released by Kino Lorber, I spoke with Brett Wood in Atlanta. You are a filmmaker as well as uh, producer at Kino. And have done both uh, independent films of your own as well as uh, a number of kind of compilation things using i guess you'd call it found footage
1: right. yeah, tell me, tell me about uh, tell me about all that you do um, well I've always wanted to be a filmmaker going back to like uh, junior high school, and always lacked the resources to make film so uh, when I was at kino uh, the President of the company at the time, Don Krim, sort of suggested we make a compilation of film clips on Lon Chaney to release when we were releasing a number of Chaney pictures. And so I took that opportunity to sort of blow it up from a compilation of clips with narration into a more ambitious documentary and have sort of continued that with uh, Kingdom of Shadows, which sort of reviews the history of the horror film during the silent era. And then probably the most ambitious was my documentary on driver education films called Hell's Highway, the true story of highway safety films. And then it was a couple of years after that that I um, had moved to Atlanta and began making contacts in the independent film community and realized you don't need a million dollars to make a film and uh, sort of embarked on these micro budget feature films and um, And at this point, I think I've made four features. My most recent one is Those Who Deserve to Die, uh, which is finished, but we haven't quite figured out what to do with. But uh, I think it'll be coming out on Blu-ray in 2020. Okay. And then how did you get involved with Kino originally? You probably know Dennis Doros from Milestone Film and Video. Well, back in probably 1985, he came to the University of Tennessee. That's where I was a student to present Queen Kelly. And I sort of hosted him while he was in town and we talked film a lot and talked about silent film. And then he came back for Sadie Thompson. And then in 1987, they had an opening for non-theatrical salesperson at Kino, And he remembered me and offered me the job. So I moved to New York and that's how I got started at Kino, And that was back when there was a robust non-theatrical market and people were renting 16 millimeter films for film societies and, uh, classrooms and things. And of course that all sort of, uh, withered away as video came onto the scene. And I used that opportunity to get more involved in things like package design. So I was art director for a while, but I always wanted to do video work, whether it's editing trailers or creating original content or even just doing film restoration. I love film and video and just managed to migrate over into that kind of work. And, you know, here I am. How many years later? I, it's 30, <laughs> 31, 32 years later. And I'm doing the thing I love the most, which is, you know, curating, restoring uh, classic film it's it's kind of a dream come true to be able to uh just spend the day watching film, working on film, writing about film and working from home. That's also kind of a, an an amazing perk to the job. So now things are good. And so you know, we became Kino Lorber a few years ago and Richard Lorber took over the company after Don Krim's death. Or they were partners before Don Krim's death. And Richard is very supportive and wants us to continue cultivating this large uh, silent film archival restoration library. Well, let's
0: talk about how a a project gets going at Kino. I mean, I'm sure there's many different ways, but you know, what's what's behind a a typical
1: silent release from Kino? Well, we we maintain relationships with the major archives and certain licensors, and try to always have a dialogue going so that we know what they're working on or we know what films they've recently uh, you know, rediscovered or located in their archives that we would be interested in releasing. And in the case of, say, the uh, Murnau Stiftung, the friedrich Wilhelm Murnau Stiftung, they provide us films that are pretty much mastered, restored, and ready to go. And in those cases, we'll take them, uh, have – the uh, inner titles translated into English and we subtitled that. We used to actually convert the inner titles from German to English, but we don't do that anymore because we want to preserve the integrity of the original. So those are kind of like relatively simple restorations and, you know, and really cause someone else did the restoration work. And then on the other hand, you will have, uh, for instance, films from the library of Congress, they will, uh, You know, we communicate with them, find out something they have that would be suitable for us to release. They create a raw scan and then we take that scan and do color grading, digital cleanup, uh, curate music to go with it if it's a silent. And then in addition to like the, you know, what we call dust busting, which is the dirt removal, we also do things like the painting out of cue marks and... Uh, if there are like messy splices, there's there's a a thousand little blemishes like that that we clean by hand in addition to the general, um, you know, dirt removal. And speaking of dirt removal, this is a thing I'm like really strict about. We try not to really lay on the dust busting because if you overdo it, it sort of whitewashes the film and it removes the film grain and the texture. So if our films tend to have a fair amount of visible dirt. It's kind of a trade-off. We do that so that we don't sacrifice the sharpness and the the grain that's part of the original celluloid. I tell you what I love to do, although it's it's kind of backbreaking, is uh, these big collections, like uh, pioneers of African American cinema, pioneers, first women filmmakers, and I'm finishing up one now, uh, Forbidden Fruit: The Golden Age of the Exploitation Picture, where we pull together films from lots of different archives, and some of these films come to us ready made, but most of them require thorough, uh, you know, restoration work. And uh, sometimes that is getting elements from different archives and then combining them to make the most complete version. And sometimes it's getting films from collectors rather than, uh, you know, uh, licensors that are. Entities that exist to license film or archives, you know, so that's there's also the private collector and combining all those into a package with, you know, essays, interviews and that kind of supplemental material that we hope um, helps the uh, the viewer appreciate this body of work. So in other words, it's not just individual films that we all know, like Phantom of the Opera and Metropolis, which we we release like every two or three years, you know, we, we release a new version of Metropolis and Phantom of the Opera. Um, but some of these lesser known films and films that don't exist in their entirety, because I love releasing fragments or films that uh, no one has seen before. Um, to me, that's really satisfying because I feel like I'm contributing uh, some bricks that have been missing from the, you know, the history of silent film. And doing those kinds of like archival box sets gives me that that freedom to uh, go way off the path of what is typically a commercially viable release. We're selling sort of the concept of the exploitation film because a lot of people don't really know what that is. They've heard of Reefer Madness, but, you know, I want them to see that there's there's this it's a whole genre. And so we're selling the concept of this genre. We're selling African-American filmmakers, you know, of the. 1920s through 40s, Um, and, you know, and hopefully opening a door to, uh, you know, people's awareness of filmmakers that they, you know, they hadn't really, you know, because it's amazing when we did Pioneer's First Women Filmmakers, how many people didn't realize um, that there were many, many films made by women directors in the silent era. Um, And it's because we don't have those cornerstone classics you know, that, that get released over and over. Um, because most of the films made by women directors were, you know, they're, I don't want to say obscure. They were very popular films at the time. And, you know, in some cases, some of the highest grossing films of the year, but they, you know, they haven't remained commercially viable releases individually. So it was important to sell them as a, as a package and, and, uh, you know, remind people that there was just, Chapter of history that we're missing with the fragments and things, and it also allows me to include like documentary clips and and glorified home movies by self-taught filmmakers, things that are never going to get a home video release otherwise. Well, let's talk. You know, one
0: thing that comes up uh, at Nitrateville, you mentioned things like Metropolis and Phantom of the Opera that get uh, reissues, and people say, you know, why do they keep putting those out? Why don't they put out things that that haven't been out before, as if you haven't done things like that whole series of Paramount yeah. films, <laughs> right. you know. I mean, that's what yeah. I. My first answer to anyone who says that is, well, did you buy You Never Know Women or something yeah. like that, that that was a Paramount film that the Kino licensed that nobody even knew what it was. It's not just yeah. that it hadn't been easy to see. It was it was basically a blank, you know, a blank name until you guys put that out. Yeah. Um, so, but. Obviously, a certain part of the market is feeding the market for the things people have heard of. You know, the Nosferatu's and so
1: on. You know, and those things, those titles sell every time we release them. And we're not doing it just to re-release the same thing over and over. Almost always, there's a you know substantial uh, improvement, whether it's a more complete print or a much uh, clearer image. We aren't just arbitrarily re-releasing the same film over and over again. But, any t- you know, if there is two minutes of new footage for Nosferatu, you better believe we're going to re-release it just because film performs over and over. Um, and, you know, people want to see it. And, and every, you know, every few years we get one step closer to seeing, you know, what these films would have looked like upon their original release. Yeah,
0: the one that that amazed me is I got the Fritz Lang box set yeah. and I had the um the Nibelungen films in the previous Kino edition, which was probably mm-hmm. fifteen or twenty years earlier, and I thought that looked really good. And th- then I got the box set and I realized how much better it can look. Uh and that's certainly a film, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna sit through four hours of that, it <laughs> ought to have its
1: really sharp detail of the, you know, production design. So, you know, the the Murnau Stiftung does such great work. And they did the restoration of this most recent version that we put out. And uh, it's, it's great that, you know, the, the German film industry has this entity that's protecting its heritage and, uh, you know, investing in it. And, uh, I mean, we have archives that are doing amazing work. None of them are, I think funded as well as they would like to be to really be even more ambitious. But um, and the, and the I will say the f- studios are getting better about sort of, res- you know, respecting and preserving their films, because for years, the studios would never release silent movies. We probably all remember in the 80s, I guess it was that Paramount released a bunch of their silence. And that was kind of it it just didn't happen very often and you can probably count you know on one hand the times that the major studios released silent films on video and we're really happy that they're working with us now and allowing us to release the films and i know flicker Alley is releasing some silent films from universal so um it's it's a we are really in a golden age of packaged media you know dvd and blu-ray releases because the studios are working with independent labels and opening up the archives and letting stuff out. like You know, you never know women, stuff that would never have been released otherwise. And um, so even though right now the DVD Blu-ray market is shrinking, um, we're releasing stuff that a lot of things have that have never been released before. And uh, you can find things coming out now that 10 years ago we would have dreamed about releasing and now we're releasing them but ironically we're releasing them now that the market is small and we really have to struggle to uh remain profitable releasing these films one
0: of the things with silence is since they don't necessarily run at 24 frames per second you have to make choices for blu-ray or dvd um about how you're going to present them at a proper speed for the film and that's always a contentious issue at Nitrateville. Tell me about
1: that for Silence. Well, here's a really good – what we can do is a great case study of a day in the life of Brett Wood. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of touches upon a lot of the things we talked about. And uh, that is uh, – you know, years ago, we released the Valentino film Blood and Sand. And um, someone recently came to us and offered us access to 35-millimeter material on the film. So I thought, great, because you know we didn't have an HD master. So I wanted to do a new scan, a 2K scan from the negative 35 millimeter negative and re-release it. And so we did that. But I'd also learned a few lessons since we had released Blood and Sand back in the, I think, late 90s. And one is that I had slowed it down too much. Um, and it was really sluggish. So this was a chance to fix that problem. So now we've increase the speed of the film slightly it's still um not 24 frames per second it's more like 20 to 22 whereas before it was at 18 which was really too slow um which raises another issue is i've got a terrific score by the mont alto motion picture orchestra and i can't use it anymore because i've changed the projection speed well i went to rodney Sauer, and said I don't want to edit your music, and I certainly don't want to like slow it down or speed it up or anything like that. Would you be willing to open up the score again and make the edits to conform to this new version? And fortunately, he said yes. So I I felt good that he was making the edits to the music so that it would stay in sync, rather than me do it. You know, it's someone else's work. But we always try to respect the integrity of the work and the person who created it. So that was great, you know. So that, there's always these little problems that are involved in, you know, when you remaster a film. And then here's another thing: is that uh, when we had put the film out back in the '90s, someone pointed out that we're missing a pretty major scene, and that's where Valentino is getting dressed before a bullfight, um, and you know, putting on his you know, matador finery. And it's kind of an important scene to have lost. And the one where they're winding it like a sash around his waist, and he's doing this sort of balletic movement as they wind him into it. So I really wanted that scene back in the film, but I didn't know where to find it. Um, and then fortunately, I found out that the uh, I Film Museum in the Netherlands has a print with that footage intact. And that's the importance of maintaining great relationships with the different archives. I was able to go to them and uh, obtain access to that missing scene. So when we re-release Blood and Sand in 2020, you know, the speed will have been corrected. The music will have been properly edited to the new speed. We will be restoring a pretty significant scene in the middle of the movie. And then the final issue is color tinting and, when we did it back in the nineties, we, I just kind of like felt like, yes, this should be a night scene. Let's make it blue. I'm going to make this scene purple. I'm going to make this scene, you know, sepia. And since then we've sort of gotten away from that where we feel like we shouldn't impose color tinting on a film unless we know for sure the color tinting that was used in that print. And so that's kind of where i am now is deciding what to do with blood and sand because when you're looking at the film you can see the density sort of the contrast and darkness of the print change in certain scenes so i know there was color tinting and so i'm going to try to track down some kind of record of what color tints were used and if i can't like satisfactorily find a tinting record or something to guide me then we probably will just release it black and white even though back in the day we released it with color tints because it's kind of like with the the dirt removal it's better to err on the side of caution and maybe leave the film a little bit more raw rather than impose something on it that is not the way it originally appeared yeah so blood and sand like is a good example of raising all these different issues that you have to think about and confront when you're restoring films And, you know, and there's also like this missing scene has Dutch intertitles, you know, because it's from a foreign language print. So I'm going to have to replace those with English intertitles that match the intertitles of the American release print. So still a lot of work to be done on that film. But I think it's going to be great when it's finished.
0: But with changing the speed, the only way you can adjust the speed is essentially... A frame gets repeated, you know, like one frame out of six gets repeated, or something like that. I mean, isn't right. that basically how it works?
1: And that's how it is now. In the uh, in the old video days, when video ran at twenty nine point nine seven, you would have interlace frames where you would have two frames sort of blended together. Sometimes on your VCR, if you freeze frame, you get that kind of flutter between frames, and and it, that is a way you could do it. But I don't, those are like not true frames. You know what I mean? Those are sure. not. You would never have a blended frame like that. So I wish there were a way to force, you know, twenty-two frames per second on your TV. But we aren't quite there yet.
0: Yeah. No. It's just it's in the the high definition standard, unfortunately, that they didn't yeah. choose to allow that because it is such a tiny part of the market.
1: Well, maybe maybe that's for the next wave of televisions because every you know eight or ten years we have to buy a new TV. Right. So. <laughs> but, you know, the thing that kind of frustrates me is that they phased out 3D televisions right at a time when we are releasing tons of 3D films. And I'm just happy that there are enough 3D enthusiasts who still own their 3D televisions or projectors uh, to continue to support those releases, but um, it's a shame that not everyone has access to a 3D television because we're, you know, doing some, still doing some very cool stuff with 3D releases. Working with Bob Furmanek and the 3D Film Archive.
0: Yeah, no, I have I have a small stack of those and no way to watch them, so it's just purely on on the assumption that someday they'll be unavailable or going for two hundred dollars yeah. on eBay, so I better get them now.
1: And the thing I would say is that you know to encourage, you know, the listeners support packaged media, buy DVDs and Blu-rays because they aren't going to be around forever, and if if people will continue to you know the numbers are shrinking, but we're we're keeping our costs under control and so that we're still able to release more and more films. But in order to, you know, to do this, to make it easier, to make us be able to dig deeper in the archives, you know, it's essential that people support what we're doing by actually purchasing the disc. And I'm not just saying go out and buy Kino Arbor product, you know, buy the discs of the companies who are doing this kind of work so that it, it you know, we're keeping classic film alive And, you know, we are at a golden age right now of classic film on DVD and Blu-ray. So let's not blow it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Switching to talkies for a second because I hear that's catching on. Um, (laughs) You know, there's there's so many studio films in the uh, Studio Classics line. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago that if a if a studio film was on Kino, it it was something that the copyright had been screwed up on and that's why yeah. you could get it. And now you're just licensing so many of these things. Um, trying to think of titles offhand, spiral staircase, Phantom yeah, sure. lady. I mean, these are, you know, these are films that I would never necessarily have expected to make it to Blu-ray and now I can hardly keep up with them. So
1: yeah. And really the credit for that goes to Frank Tarzy, who's one of the producers uh, at Kino Lorber and he runs our Kino Lorber studio classics line and he opened the doors to Paramount, MGM, Disney, Fox, um, and, you know, negotiated and, uh, studio canal. We just are in the process of releasing a huge, um, package of studio canal titles. And, you know, I give him the credit for, uh, brokering these deals. And, and, part of what made these deals possible is um, we're not just trying to release two or three films that he went in and like really wanted to, you know, dig deep into the archives and release 50 films, 75 films, which, um, it, as, as you can see from our weekly releases, we release probably, I don't know, I want to say like, you know, six to eight films every week, which is mind boggling, but that's how we do it is in order to get, the studios to allow us to release films, we have to like have these really big package deals, which means we get to dig really deep into lesser known titles. And when we do that, they also give us occasional really big titles like, um, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly who would have ever thought that, you know, Laura would release the good, the bad and the ugly, but we did. And part of that is because, you know, Frank negotiated this deal where we take things that they're never gonna release on uh, DVD or Blu-ray, we release those, but we also get a certain number of their A titles. And uh, it's, you know, and I hope that we continue to do that. In fact, I know we're gonna continue to do that because uh, they were just out in LA, you know, having meetings with some of the other studios. And so this is a tradition we're gonna continue.
0: It's not just putting the film out in a nice yeah. edition, but I mean, every one of these titles practically has a commentary track by someone, uh, a lot of whom have been on on this podcast. Uh, there will be other kinds of extras. Sometimes, I mean, it, I, I guess yeah. commentary tracks are probably the most numerous. But obviously, a lot of, a lot of thought goes into. What, uh, you know, what what can you add to something to make people interested in, you know, like Nosferatu again or whatever it happens to be?
1: Yeah. Um. And, yeah, so we try to do something to sort of uh, contextualize the film. And usually the first thing is, um, is anyone still alive, you know, associated with the making of this film and can we get them? Um, and then uh, in the... A lot of these cases, there's really no one whom we can access. And so we will get historian commentaries. And uh, we have sort of our team of commentators and we're steadily uh, expanding that team, um, trying to, you know, have enough people so that we have someone with every field of interest who can, uh, you know, provide thoughtful and detailed commentaries for films and we also maintain contact with a lot of producers of content, uh, interviews, you know, sort of mini documentaries about the making of films. So uh, a, a lot of times we rely on them. You know, we let them know what we have coming out and they'll come back to us. Well, why don't we shoot an interview with so-and-so? I think I can get them. So there's sort of an organic process to how, uh, you know, we curate the bonus content that goes with the films. And one, you know, one thing I, I feel especially proud of is that uh, it, in my eyes, it seems like in the past that the audio commentaries were kind of a boys' club because uh, film fandoms seem to be kind of male-driven, and so I made a conscious effort to try to bring more women historians into the mix. And so now I would say, like probably almost half of the commentaries we do. Um, or people like Cat Ellinger, uh, Sam Deegan,
0: Veron um, uh, Smith. Nemi is, I think, is yeah, one of right. in Some,
1: but I'm, but I'm proud of that, that. That we're, you know, and we're trying to seek, you know, more diversity as well in doing commentary tracks because I think it, you know, it, it's just a good, healthy thing to do, and hopefully, in you know, anything to broaden our audience.
0: Yeah no I think uh that's something I mean as much as as Twitter is a hellhole one good thing it's done is bring bring forth a lot of uh writers uh who are often women and have not been Published in this or that that yeah. that like you say they were kind of the traditional boys club of of historians, and certainly for you know especially for film I don't mean to stick them only in women's films, but you definitely get a different perspective someone talking about Joan Crawford or whoever
1: yeah, you mentioned Twitter it's a good point it sort of democratizes uh you know things a little more it gives everyone a voice and so um yeah, the more we can do that, I think the better. And and also it, it keeps it from being like this ivory tower of a handful of, you know, authorized historians. It, you know, it, it's a nice – we want to have a diversity of voices, but also make sure that the people who do commentaries really know what they're talking about. And what I love the best in commentaries is when someone combines, you know, the history of the making of the film um, – references to what you're seeing on screen at that moment. I think that's always important, but also bring something of themselves into the commentaries and share personal anecdotes about how that film connected with them. Some of my favorite ones are people talking about the first time they saw this film, you know, they were, you know, in their parents' basement and they were 12 years old and, and how this movie really like fueled them and fueled their interest in film and you know, sort of deepen the mystery of film, which they've spent their entire life sort of, you know, tirelessly investigating. I, I love that. I love hearing people's experiences of why they love cinema and kind of putting their finger on what makes film so magic for them because we can, anyone can pull up the IMDB and, you know, give someone's credits, but what makes a film special? That's something that I think I love to hear people talk about and, and, And it's a little something that I sort of feel like I'm sharing of myself when I produce these films. I I try to find films that mean something to me and in hopes that they will, you know, mean something to the viewer out there and the next generation after them.
0: 1,111. That's the number of listeners the most popular Nitrateville radio podcast has had. 1,012. That's the number the second most popular podcast has had. 500. That's the number I used to hope each one would reach. But the audience keeps growing. So now it's 700, maybe 800. Most of them do get that far. 60. That's the number of ratings and reviews we've had at iTunes and Apple Podcasts. That raises our visibility and helps our audience numbers keep climbing. So won't you leave us a rating and a review and help other people discover us too? Thanks. You're number one. Peter Pan needs little introduction. The tale of the boy who would not grow up, usually played on stage by a young woman, has been a perennial favorite since it was written in 1904. James M. Barry was involved with the first film version in 1924, starring Betty Bronson, and Herbert Brennan's film represents much of Barry's original conception for the stage success, as well as representing an early example of movie effects magic. For this new Blu-ray release, Kino Lorber recruited Kat Ellinger, who is the editor-in-chief of the print and online genre magazine Diabolique and co-host of its Daughters of Darkness podcast, to provide a commentary track. I spoke with Kat Ellinger in England. Your site is kind of horror-focused, to judge by the imagery. You talk about being interested in genre films, but I guess that takes in a bit of the fantasy field as well. So tell me how you got interested in Peter Pan.
3: Peter Pan's just one of those stories. Like most people, I grew up with it. And, uh, and then obviously there was the Disney film as well, but that didn't really chime with my idea of the book. So I grew up on the book. Same with Alice in Wonderland. But I'm not just a, a kind of quote unquote genre person. I do have a real deep interest in fantasy film anyway, like from all ages, all genres, all eras. So it's just one of those films that got caught up in my lifelong mission to see, I guess, every fantasy film ever made, which is proving to be possible, impossible. I'm 45. <laughs> Just discovered a load of Russian ones, so it's it's just one of those things. I guess it just appeals. It's such an appealing story, isn't it? To to everyone, no one really wants to grow up. So, I guess it's favourite as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's
0: certainly one that uh, I mean. Here's. Barry was a uh, successful playwright, and it wrote some things that we still know, at least from their film versions, if nothing else, like The Admirable Crichton and The Little Minister and Quality Street. But it's pretty safe to say he's overshadowed by Peter Pan, as as much as Conan Doyle is by Sherlock Holmes. So why do you think Peter Pan took off in such a way?
3: It's it's interesting because when Barry wrote it, and um, a lot of people know this, it was for his obsession with the Llewellyn Davis boys, this young family that he befriended. And he went away on holiday with them and he did this book called The Castaways. And he kind of turned their adventure into, or their adventures into Peter Pan. But when he actually wrote it, it was like a vanity project. He didn't actually think the producer was gonna take it. And he goes to the producer and says, well, you can have this other play, Alice by the Fire if you'll do Peter Pan, thinking that it will be a total loss. And it was just huge, massive. Like, even now, it still is. Um It really tapped into, I don't think it was written as a pantomime. And I don't really know if you have the pantomime in America, do Not you? Not
0: really, but I think a lot of people so- know what it is, roughly. <laughs>
3: Part of British culture, even now, like the the Christmas holidays, uh, if you've got kids, they're all about going to the pantomime, and it really sort of tapped into that tradition which was a massive going concern then like probably even bigger than it is now I mean it's still quite big so I think that made it really appealing to people plus it was quite adventurous as well because he had all these animals and stunts and stuff in it when they actually got the script the first thing was like oh how like how are we going to put this on the stage because it was you know, beyond the technology that they have for the time. So I think it's, it. I think that's why it became so big. But then you've got that eternal theme of the loss of innocence and having to grow up and people always keep that little bit of childhood inside them and they don't really want to grow up. So it's, it was written for adults and children and it still appeals to adults and children. So, yeah.
0: So, you know, it's interesting, a lot of classic stories, there's always an earlier silent film version, it seems like. You know, if you if you like a, a uh, Dickens tale from the 20s, there was one in the teens. But that's not true with Peter Pan. This movie of Peter Pan was the first and was very much a big deal for Paramount.
3: Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important that it was restored. And I think at one point they thought it was completely lost, didn't they? Which would have been... Awful, if that had been the case. It was, I mean, it was written in 1904, first staged in 1904, so it'd already become a tradition for 20 years when Paramount bought the rights and they worked with Barry to bring it to the screen. And Barry had a real interest in cinema as well. In his own work, he was looking at ways of bringing cinema into theatre and experimenting, but it didn't really take off. So he had a real interest in cinema anyway, and he was kind of involved in the casting and everything. But it was a huge big deal for Paramount, it was like their big Christmas blockbuster i guess they're like huge big christmas blockbuster there was so much for a year in the press they were like hyping this up you know who was gonna pay peter who was gonna do this and you know and it just went on for about a year so paramount had so much invested in that one film and then they did the kiss with cinderella a year later and unfortunately because it was supposed to become a new tradition for them it kind of just fizzled out after that and it didn't you know really take off but that first film it was huge for them absolutely huge they had so much riding on it
0: there wasn't really the family film market then and then the way that we think of it uh, in more recent years after the after world war ii particularly because everybody just went to the same movies but yeah. tell me about how they how they saw marketing peter pan
3: I mean, it was, as you say, correctly. I mean, probably one of the first that was actually directly marketed as a family affair. And even though Paramount were over in America, this this play already had a 20-year tradition of being shown at Christmas. So it was part of people's holiday traditions over in, in the States and, but mainly in Britain as well. So it already had this tradition. And I think Paramount grabbed hold of that and then they amplified it to Hollywood proportions because they really wanted to get everyone involved. And, of course, it's at the time when, you know, we're in the early stages of the code about to come in and there's all this talk of Hollywood Babylon and, <laughs> you know, they're wanting, you know, all the people are out there in Hollywood, you know, consumed on sex and orgies and drugs and they're trying to be a bit more quote-unquote, family-friendly. One of the interesting things was Peter Pan actually got so much good press from the Christian like, publications, they loved it. But then when you think about Peter Pan and the underlying parts of the story that come from J.M. Barry, it's actually transgressive and there's a lot of darkness in there so it's not entirely family friendly if you start to look into the history and think oh actually there's some interesting stuff there about sexuality well
0: yeah i mean Peter sort of represents that that kind of pagan nature of of young boys before civilization and Christianity had a chance to uh, you know smooth their rough edges off. I mean, he he's he wants to be eternally that sort of figure, and the fact that he's named for Pan obviously suggests something other than the proper Victorian Christian tradition.
3: I mean, he, he was so into that Barry in this. Um I don't really want to call it an obsession. He had a, a strange relationship with the Llewellyn Davis boys, who he late, late, later became his legal uh, wards when both of their parents died. But he had, I guess, a complicated relationship with children in that he seemed very drawn to their feral nature. I think one of the complaints the nanny had about him when he took over their care was he spoilt them and he just let them run wild. He would just take kids out to an island and let them dress up as pirates and run around and just, you know, he was really drawn to that idea of of the child as a kind of, you know, innocent savage. And that's what he tries to capture in Peter Pan. But I think it's something that we all relate to because there's a certain freedom in that and we think about being children we think about being free and i think that's why the overall success of the film was largely down to the fact that it really did it really did appeal to adults and children it it's one of those things that's kind of universal so it wasn't just a case of parents having to take the kids or cuz like you said there was no market for that then it was um you know very much a family affair that everyone would find something in it
0: it's also, I mean, it's kind of a, an early example of the special effects film, um, somewhat inherited from stage effects. You know, we, I think for us now, if you think of Peter Pan as a stage presentation, it's all around the uh, the flying rig and the idea of whoever plays Peter, like Kathy Rigby or somebody sort of sailing over the stage and being able to do that sort of thing. What Was that... Built into the concept from the start, that that was part of why you went to see it.
3: I mean, back then, obviously, yeah, it was, it did have that additional appeal, even as a stage show. Um, as I said a little bit a minute ago, uh, when they first were pre- presented with Barry's script, they were like, How the hell are we gonna do all this? Because <laughs> you've got miniature fairies. And, you know, <laughs> This, you know crocodiles and stuff and they had to really work it out from scratch because they didn't have the technology then they had stuff from ballet like you know the flying rigs and stuff they were able to adapt some from ballet but some of it was a real challenge and I think that's what really appealed to people and then bringing it to film uh, one thing I love about this version is they kept it very close to Barry's because we can't go and see Barry's stage play, obviously. We can see an emulation of it. But what you see in that film is as close to Barry's vision with him supervising as it would have been on stage. It's just expanded slightly. Obviously, they have some locations and they can do a lot more with the effects, especially with with a uh, Tinkerbell and that but it's it's very close to what Barry wanted, or what he, what people would have been used to seeing on the stage. And you know, back in nineteen twenty-four, this was big, I and mean, we're spoiled now <laughs> with the CGI <United laughs> sure. stuff. But this was major stuff. This was, you know, if you look at the press reports, people were just totally. I think it's still magical when you look at it, even though. You know, the film's nearly a hundred years old. It still has that magical thing with the practical effects. It feels really magical. This was this was new. This was just something like, whoa.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, as you say, for the stage thing, I mean it really you really see that just from the very beginning because it opens with the dog, the dog slash nanny, uh kind of readying everything for the day. And the perspective is very much from the audience. We see three sides of, of a four sided room as if we are looking onto a stage set. And the dog goes through the business and there's no pretense that this is not a human in a dog suit, but it, uh, it gets across, You know, we're, we're taken into the, the magic of that world. And I imagine that's a pretty close uh, carryover directly from the stage.
3: Yeah, I mean, even with the stage version for the first 20 odd years, Barry had a lot to do with the stage presentations that went on every year at Christmas. And so he would come in, they'd, they'd have to change Peter Pan every few years and recast, and they'd have a, a. He'd add things. They had to. One of the things I love, they had to uh, write in an extra scene at one point that. You can only fly if you've had been sprinkled with the magic dust because they were worried about kids throwing themselves out a window. <laughs> <laughs> they had to come in and write an additional scene and he'd be like, really involved in that, even though he didn't really need to be. And even with the film, he was still... Even though he didn't script it, he was very involved in what he had. It was his choice he would play Peter Pan for a start. And so... What you see in that film is something very close to to what people would have been used to seeing on the stage. Hell of a difficult job on a commentary, though, where you have the third of the film, there are no scenes. It just all takes place just in one room. There's, like, no no break, no natural break, no editing breaks or anything. It's just, it's like watching a, a play, and then, obviously, they go to Neverland and it it sort of, you know, expands a bit, but that first third is just like sitting and watching a 1920s play, which is quite brilliant.
0: Well, let's talk about casting. Since you mentioned that Uh, Betty Bronson, a silent star who's pretty much remembered for this one role, um, although, as you mentioned, she also did another Barry play, A Kiss for Cinderella, a film that is one of those things that kind of exists but is badly damaged and, yeah. you know, we it's, it's hard to see as a result. Um, tell me how they cast her.
3: Well, they they were looking for immense for a, you know for the you know the the leading native of pan and the, there were so many rumors of who was gonna play pan and Mary Pickford was one of them and Mary Pickford actually went out to the press and just sort of said look I'm not playing Peter Pan because <laughs> like <laughs> you know and um and And she was, Bronson, she was just like an unknown. She was just somebody who was picked up. Barry apparently had the say in the casting and he picked her. So she was taken over to Paramount, did Peter Pan, and was then given a contract for hopefully a series of these films, including A Kiss for Cinderella. And unfortunately then, those family films didn't really take off because we got into pre-code. And she just got left kind of floating in this, (laughs) you know, ether of not really, people not really knowing how to cast her. But she was, um, yeah, she wasn't like somebody from the Hollywood system. She wasn't a, a, a name or anything. She was just some just a normal girl I think she was about 16 or seventeen she met with Barry he really liked her so he picked her and then all of a sudden she becomes this massive star for um kiss for Cinderella was the year after for a couple of years she was huge because of Peter Pan it's amazing everyone who gets seems to get involved with peter Pan that that becomes the <laughs> the right. thing Uh, Yeah, it's like nothing else can ever beat it. Same with uh, Barry, even though he wrote so much in that people always remember him as the man who did Peter Pan. Bronson was Peter Pan. And the first cinematic Peter Pan as well, of course.
0: Yeah. Herbert Brennan, who directed it, you know, if we think of another film of his, it's probably Beaugest, very different uh, piece of material from, from another author of that time period. Um, and also, I, I saw recently a, an adaptation of Joseph Conrad that he did, The Rescue. So offhand, he does not strike me as the obvious person to do Peter Pan, but of course, does a, a very fine job. What do you? How do you think Brennan approached it?
3: Yeah, with the director he he was just somebody it's not, I'm not sure why he was chosen for it but he was um but he basically delivered an essay to the press talking about his or what his approach for Peter Pan would be in that he believed that you had to think as a child to make fantasy films and that is how he approaches it as you know, through a child's eyes rather than the adult logic thing. And all this was, of course, playing into the myth of Peter Pan before people even got to see it on screen, which is quite how Paramount was just so invested in it, I guess, that they any little piece of news they could spin on it, they would. God knows how much they spent on the campaign. (laughs) on and on but yeah i think he does he does approach it that way in a very childish way i'm not saying it's not sophisticated because it is in many ways if you look at all that subtext and i think he kept a lot of that subtext he keeps a lot of the peter pan and and wendy the complicated almost sexual relationship that they have which of course disney changed Later on he keeps that part of it it keeps the more sophisticated elements but he does also like you said when you see the dog who's the nanny it's all very pantomime and childish so he was he was deliberately doing that because he was uh you know I guess it goes with Peter Pan and JM Barry because JM Barry the idea about him was that he, he was like the child whisperer. Children could really relate to him because he was a child himself. So I think, you know, given the, I mean, there was no precedent for this, I guess, though. So yeah. so anyone they got would have been breaking new ground. But I think he was so respectful to that, that I think thats that's a huge part of why the film works so well.
0: The other person I think is interesting to see involved with it is James Wong Howe, who had a very long career as a very distinguished cinematographer. Uh, And in an effects picture like this, the work of the cinematographer is particularly important.
3: That part, I couldn't really find out much about it when I did the research. Um, Especially when you look at the reports in the press, they're all about the stars and Barry and then the director Um, But obviously they needed, I mean, there's some experimental stuff in there. So they needed somebody who knew what they were doing. And I would imagine, you know, with no precedent and everything and so much riding on this, this, there was a lot invested in who they got. But unfortunately, one of the things that is missed is, um, and I guess it's just part of the course in that sort of reporting from that era, Nobody really talked about the special effects or the camera work or anything. It was uh, just completely glossed over, if in like not in the way that we look at it today. We'd, you know, what we wanted to know, you know, how did you do that? Almost like they don't want to spoil the magic of it. Yeah, lots of the use of the word magical, <laughs> like, yeah. and it is really magical.
0: So was it, uh, it? It was a big success, as you say. Was it reissued after Sound? Was it one of the ones that people liked to see again, or did it pretty much drop off the face of the earth at that point?
3: I think it just disappeared, and it, and it's strange. Well, I guess it's because the tide shifted again, and people weren't. And then obviously Sound came in, and people really weren't wanting these family epics. Because uh, when you look at the expectations, this seemed to be the start of something. And I think the film really captures that excitement. And then if you look at, you know, the big window displays they had and all the marketing that they did at the time, and it would have been Christmas as well. You know, they wanted to make this an event rather than just a film. And then it, and then it just kind of, like I said, with A Kiss of Cinderella, which... You you can't you can see it now, but it's just so the is is heartbreaking, really. And then, of course, for years they thought it was lost, and then it, and then they you know it appeared again, thank God, and was able. So they were able to restore it. Now, didn't Disney have it? He had a because obviously their version is so different, and it's the one that a lot of people know as well. But they make changes to barry's thing and i think yeah disney had a print before they did theirs which was nearly 25 years later and uh you know i think was it found in the 50s they found uh they found a print of it which has been amazing and uh yeah i think disney had a 16 millimeter copy of it hidden away. <laughs> perhaps they didn't want people i shouldn't say bad things but me, <laughs> well there it was, was that rough.
0: tendency then to yeah you know, to like you know forget about that old one see the the great new color and everything version and to kind of dismiss the one of the past as being obviously inferior to what we can do
3: now yeah and i just yeah it was just kind of hidden hidden away in their vault so it could have been but at least they didn't destroy it which is uh <laughs> yeah one thing yeah. I mean, I don't see this and the Disney one as even being in the same. The Disney one is is great when you're a kid and everything, but it's been smoothed down and made nicer. Whereas this one's a bit closer to J.M. Barry and his personal darkness. Although it might not seem that way when you watch it, not if you don't know anything about J.M. Barry. Once you start looking into who he was you start seeing things in Peter Pan that probably weren't supposed to be that obvious.
0: Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that because, I mean, that is, that is interesting. It's one of the strengths of the fantasy genre is that I feel like so often we can tap into deeper currents, deeper fears or whatever in a fantastic setting in a way that if you made a straightforward drama about it, people would object to that. So yeah, let's let's talk about what the the darker currents from Barry in Barry's work here.
3: Well, there's a lot. I mean, there's huge actual exclusive scholarship around J.M. Barry, just like there is Lewis Carroll, because you know there's so much about his life that is complicated, and people don't really know either way. But for a start his older brother died when he was a child and you know if you think about peter pan and this idea of never growing old and you think about the effect that his brother's death had apparently his mother just had a complete breakdown she totally wouldn't even acknowledge that he he james or uh, the younger son existed and he felt to get his mother To notice him, he he had to sort of emulate his older brother and play this fantasy out with his mother. And then later on, some of his earliest writings were inspired by stories his mother had told him about her childhood. And he wrote these very kind of pastoral Scottish stories. That's how he first became, or first got success, writing these stories. So you've got, at the start of his life, This whole thing about death, trauma, death, unresolved grief, uh, strained. There's a lot of stuff about mothers in Peter Pan. A very, very complicated relationship with his mother. He obviously felt, you know, very damaged by his brother's death because he felt rejected. All that stuff to go into. Then as an adult, he married an actress called Mary Ansel. And they didn't have children, but then the, the rumours were that they never had a sexual relationship and he wasn't actually interested in sex. So if you look at Peter Pan and Wendy's relationship when she's talking about a kiss and he doesn't really understand that and you look at Barry, the man who apparently nobody ever really uncovered what it was, whether he was impotent or whether he just didn't like sexual relationships or what it was. He, um, you know, you look at that within Peter Pan and Wendy and you get this very interesting sexual angle that comes up that could relate to his complicated or the writer's complicated relationship with sex. Because Peter Pan kind of has a chance with wendy but he decides to stay a boy which is quite interesting he has that and then there's the whole thing with the llewellyn davis boys as well how jay and barry really wanted a family and he was kind of you know he kind of um if you've watched the the hollywood finding neverland thing it's a completely different story to what actually seems to have happened because all of those boys as well i mean the actual Llewellyn davis boys like the the one named peter he was actually the youngest and was obey i think actually his mother might have been pregnant when he was writing peter pan he actually committed suicide in the 60s because of all this stuff that had happened with jm barry and his father had died and you know uh another one was killed in the war uh, michael one of the other older ones was and you see those those names come up as well and peter pan uh died in a drowning accident that is thought to have maybe have been a suicide with his gay lover there's so much of this stuff that surrounds peter pan that's in there. And J.M. And Barry is obviously working these things out. When you take it at face value, it looks like a wonderful, childish fantasy film. But you start to look at these aspects of Jane Barry's life, which was really tragic. It was all about loss. He lost so many people. Um, and then suddenly the idea of never growing old, it suddenly just takes on this whole new spin.
0: Well, and it's not just him. I mean, the fact that it was a huge hit means that that was resonant for English society and ultimately uh, other societies as well where it was popular and that there was really, you know, a lot of people clearly on some level identified with that idea of never growing old, certainly uh of, you know, sort of turning the clock back on the devastation of the war. If, you know, if you lost if you lost someone who was 18 in the war and you could make them 12 forever, then the war to, didn't happen.
3: I think that was also an important part of it because this was, you know, a time when, when this came to the screen rather than the pantomime, that a lot of people had lost young men. And Peter, he becomes that mythical figure for all the Lost Boys and the idea that they're just called the Lost Boys. There's so much sadness in there when when you look at it. I think it, it really does become it does have an emotional resonance that some of the fan children's fantasies generally don't, or they're put there for sentimental purposes deliberately. And with Peter Pan it's it's not, it's organic, it's It's part of that story. I hope with the new restoration, it brings in the people that have grown up on Disney and they start to look at Peter Pan as as something else. Like Alice in Wonderland has all these wonderful readings. I think, you know, the film serves as a starting block to start delving into all these other things because J.M. Barrie just had such a remarkable interest in life and you know he did put a lot of autobiography into his other writing but i think peter pan is jm barry there's just so many things in there and that film is like a it's just a perfect way to honor his legacy the fact that he was even involved as well just makes it so perfect
0: That was music by Dr. Philip Carley for the new release of Peter Pan, out now from Kino Lorber. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Matt Barry, Brett Wood, and Kat Ellinger. Theme music is by Kevin MacLeod. Don't forget to enter the drawing at nitrateville.com for copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin and Peter Pan, and to subscribe at your favorite podcast, Thingamabob, and leave us a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and I'll be back next time. Oh no.
1: That cursed creature.